The identity questions of transgender and homosexual individuals have never been louder. For Christians, the issue is a bit more complex to navigate and we are easily tagged as fear mongers if we don't succumb to the mob morality. What should be our stance on these matters? Well, much to unpack when we return. Welcome back to Saft Podcast. And as you guys know the drill, if you're listening or watching for the very first time, stay subscribed. And if you enjoy our work, do share and review our content on your favorite listening platforms. And we've got some amazing content rolling out for you in the coming months. And today I am joined by the iconic Nancy Piercy. Ma'am, welcome to Saft Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, a quick introduction to who uh, we have here on the as guest for this episode. The Economist tagged her as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And she is currently a professor of apologetics and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and editor at large of the PRC Report. From the Capitol Hill to the White House to Hollywood, she has left her mark in some of the most important places of influence. She has published more than 100 articles on outlets such as the Washington Post, Christianity Today, and even studied under one of the most influential Christian philosophers, Christian thinkers of the past century, Francis Schaeffer. And so today we are going to look at a couple of complex questions. We will try to unpack them as much as we can. And the crux that is tying together this uh, entire topic that we're going to discuss is her latest book, Love Thy Body. It is a must-get book. You'll find them on various platforms, and I'll be dropping a link in the description to the book. And so, ma'am, what what is the question that you are aiming to address with the book, Love Thy Body? Yes, thanks for asking me. Um, Love Thy Body addresses, as you said, some of the most cutting edge moral issues of our day, from abortion and euthanasia to homosexuality and transgenderism. And the goal in the book is to help Christians uh, answer, answer their secular critics so that uh, today people are not asking so much, is Christianity true? They're asking, right. why are Christians such bigots? Right. And so I, I, in the book, I help people to craft a, a positive apologetic, uh, you might call it a moral apologetic, hmm. to show that Christianity is actually based, uh, the Christian ethic is based on a much higher view of the human person and specifically the human body because all of these issues have to do with the body. And so I, I wanted to show that it's the secular view actually that's based on a very low view of the body you know, as a product of blind material forces and then therefore having no particular um, dignity or value. So I kind of flipped this, flipped this, uh, the tables and right. showing that it's Christianity that has a high view of the body. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the book Love the Body is uh, more focused towards a Christian audience to read uh, uh, while you address secular topics. Am I right in that conclusion? Well, it equips Christians to answer the questions that are being raised by our secular culture. So hmm. in that sense, you have to understand the secular worldview too right, um, right. in order to address it adequately. And so, but, but yes, you're quite right. I'm primarily equipping Christians to answer the most uh, common objections that we hear today. Yeah. And in the book, you mentioned this very interesting term. You mentioned a term called secular liberalism. And it made me wonder what secular liberalism is and also made me wonder even more if there is secular liberalism, is there spiritual liberalism? 
with this theological liberalism, right? Right, right. Liber liberalism in the theological world means uh, people who don't really, the crux of it is people who don't believe that the Bible is truly divine revelation, that the, that the Bible is a product of human, yeah. so like humans are writing. Progressive Christianity level. Yes, exactly. That's another yeah. good. Today, I think the word progressive is used more often than liberal, mm -hmm. but it is, it's the same thing. It's basically saying that uh, the Bible is a product of uh, humans, human reason, human human experience, and therefore it's really no different from any other human book uh, full of errors, myths, and legends. So that would be what people tend to mean when they say liberalism in the uh, theological sense. Right. And so, so you will see that uh, when we say theological liberalism, it's just a watered-down form of Christian theology. So what is secular liberalism sort of liberalizing in that sense? Yeah, so in this book, Love Thy Body, I'm dealing with uh, a secular worldview, but mm. also a politically liberal view in the sense that um, liberalism as opposed to conservatism in a political sense tends to mean uh, the individual uh, is primary, there are, the individual chooses for themselves what they think is right or wrong, there's no external authority. Um, right. Yes, and so it, hmm. I, I had to have a label. <laughs> I had to have a label for the secular ethic, and right, it is right. a liberal ethic, so I called it secular liberalism. Right, and a quick note to the audience, we had Alyssa Childers on the podcast a couple of months back, and we talked about progressive Christianity, so you'll be, uh, I'll be dropping a link to that in the description. It's a must check out. And like I mentioned, in this book, you cover a variety of topics like abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, and transgenderism. We will look to cover as much as, as much as we can, but let's quickly address abortion and euthanasia, and then let's see how much we can dive into the other two. Uh, you argue that abortion is an example of secular liberalism destroying human rights. Now, obviously, the opposition would say that uh, abortion enables a mother to exercise her right over her body, especially if she feels that pursuing pregnancy can be life altering. So what right exactly is being uh, destroyed by secular liberalism when they push for abortion? Yeah, to explain that, you have to back up and say, you know, what, what is the overall critique of secular liberalism that I offer here? And it is that it has a divided or split view of the human person so that hmm. you have uh, a body versus person and they are separate. And right. the, abortion is a first example because today all secular bioethicists agree that life begins at conception. A lot of ordinary people don't realize that, but it, among professional bioethicists, they all agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. Mm -hmm. so, so, science makes it very clear. Just read any embryology textbook. So the question then is, how do they get around that? If, mm. the, if the fetus is human from conception, how do they get around that to support abortion? Well, what they say is the fetus is human, but not yet a person. Mm. And mm. to become a person, the fetus has to, uh, it has to earn the right to personhoods by achieving a certain level of uh, cognitive awareness, mental mm. abilities, um, cognitive functioning. And so it, as you can see how the human being has been split in half. In, us, in right. essence, they're saying it's human at one point, hmm. but it's not a person until some later point. And only when it's a person does it have moral status, only then uh, does it want legal protection. So, but what they're saying, coming back to your question about rights, what they're saying then is being human. 
is not enough for human rights. Hmm. As long as the fetus is merely human, as they would put it, merely, um, it's just a piece of matter. Hmm. Hmm. It's really just something that can be uh, disposed of as medical waste. That's what it's actually called in the medical hmm. journals. They will talk about medical waste when they throw away uh, fetal tissue. Uh, it can be um, used for research and experiments. It of course, it can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be picked through for sellable body parts as Planned Parenthood does. So being human does not give the fetus any rights at all. Hmm. In a materialistic worldview, it is just a piece of matter that could be thrown out, like I said, with the other medical waste. So this is what I mean when I say uh, uh, the thinking, it's the thinking behind abortion then that has has given us the um, the message that being human is not enough for human rights, that you have to earn human rights by achieving a certain level of mental functioning. Of yeah. course, the problem is that where, where's the line, right? Yeah. When does yeah. the fetus become a person? And there, if you, if you read the, um, uh, again, the professional bioethicists, they all disagree. They all differ. Mm. Mm. They all differ because it's become an arbitrary subjective judgment on, on the part of every bioethicist. If it's not linked to being biologically human, what is it linked to? And so each bioethicist out there draws the line at a different place, depending on their own personal mm. views and values. Yeah, and as you were unpacking, it became very obvious that the arbitrariness is now becoming very dangerous because uh, once you want to ascribe cognitive faculties to be a prerequisite for someone to be considered a person and then to be considered human rights. It's a very slippery slope. And it, it touches to the next question that I wanted to ask that you address in the book, the topic of euthanasia. But euthanasia becomes even more complex because not only do we have a fully grown adult in most cases, uh, it's an individual who is, uh, to, put it, to put it in simple terms, who is surviving but not living. And my question concerns is, uh, how can someone who is brain dead live a life where he or she is pursuing God? Because in that state, they are unable to pursue and unable to not pursue God. Is that a life worth living? And, and if not, then aren't we doing them and their family a favor, especially if it is someone who has accepted Christ as their personal savior? Yeah, well, it, again, it comes down to is personal worth linked to functions? You know, hmm. just like in a case of abortion, the secular ideal is that you have to you have to be able to perform certain functions to qualify as a person with moral right. worth and moral standing. And the the case for euthanasia, of course, is just the reverse. Hmm. Basically, secular bioethicists are saying if you lose certain cognitive functions, hmm. then you are no longer a person. And as they sometimes they sometimes will put it this way, you are only a body. But right. you see, once again, you are fully human. Hmm. And once again. <laughs> If you detach being, if you detach being a person from being human, then it becomes completely arbitrary in terms of what functions, which functions count in, mm. in being considered a person. Uh, for a secular bioethicist today, once you've lost, well, whatever whatever functions he or she thinks are important, again, it's it's completely arbitrary. Whatever functions they think are important, once you lose those, then you 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 know, your organs can be um, transferred and your food and, food and water can be withheld and mm -hmm. your treatment can be stopped. So again, being human, they won't, obviously the person's still human. 
Right. You know, they didn't become a different species. Right. So being human is not enough for human rights. Right. Yeah. And it, it just brings to light, like, as you're expressing, it comes even more, the arbitrariness come to light even more as you, as you dive into these, into these points. And uh, for a Christian, obviously, the point is going to be drastically different. And it seems to me that at some point that when they're pursuing this point of secular liberalism, they're holding, they're trying to uh, point fingers at some sort of immaterial abstract uh, points that as, as a Christian subject, we may point out to an existence of a mind in the person that even if they are unable to perform certain functions, their uh, inherent worth shall remain. And, uh, and I believe that as the audience dive into the book, they'll be able to see that much more clearly. And then you go on to make this claim that there is a common thread that connects uh, euthanasia, abortion to other moral issues like homosexuality. What, what is that common thread happening there? Right. This was uh, perhaps the most surprising part of the book because most people don't make that connection. Um, but as we saw with abortion and euthanasia, the secular ethic rests on a division between the body and the person, you know, mm. acknowledging that the body is human, but personhood is separate. Um, so it's a, it's a divided, fractured, fragmented view of the human being. Right. Uh, and the same thing is seen in homosexuality. And it's not quite as clear to see, but even my homosexual friends will agree that in terms of um, anatomy, chromosomes, mm. biology, physiology, um, bi you know, in other words, biologically speaking, males and females are counterparts to one another. Right. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity, then, is to implicitly contradict that design. Hmm. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? Hmm. Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? Right. So this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. Hmm. Hmm. And by pitting the mind against the body, Essentially, it creates uh, fragmentation, self-alienation. And our response to that should be, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? Hmm. You know, the Christian view is that the body and the person are what every human is a person. The yeah. two, you, can't, you cannot separate them out. And so the Christian ethic is holistic. It says you are meant to live in harmony with your body. You're meant to live in accord with who God made you. You're meant to respect your biological sex. So this is why the Christian ethic is really much more uh, affirming of human dignity and value. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let me just give you one example from the secular side. Um, it's, she's, so, um, she's so clear about it. Her name is Camille Paglia, and she's a fairly well-known public intellectual here in the United States. And the way she, and she is herself a lesbian. Um, and the interesting thing about her is that she also agrees that nature made us male and female. You know, that she, she says, you know, sex is not a social construction, like the mm -hmm. postmodernist would say. Uh, humans are sexually reproducing species. So you say then, well, how do you justify being a lesbian then? And she literally says, well, why not defy nature? That's her word. Mm -hmm. And then she says, um, and this is a direct quote. Uh, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Mm. 
So her argument, if you catch the logic there, is if God has not created our bodies, if they're product of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose right. that we are morally obligated to respect. They, they tell us nothing about our identity. They're not even part of our, our authentic self. Mm -hmm. So this is the, uh, the underlying, you know, the underlying question here basically is, do we live in a cosmos that's the product of mindless, purposeless forces? Hmm. Or do we live in a cosmos where it was designed for a purpose and therefore we are called to respect and live in accord with our body? Yeah, yeah and the, the quote that you mentioned, it, it immediately struck me as a very good example to show when we talk about the moral argument, we talk about how objective moral values and duties can only exist if there is God. So when she mentions about how we can define nature, and if you do not have God, if you do not have a, a personal uh, foundation for morality, then duties don't make any sense. I mean, why are we obligated to stick by and uh, run with nature when we can run against the tide? And uh, you also mentioned a very interesting point that I want to dive in a, a, maybe a couple of minutes later. But the moment we talk about God being concerned with what we do with our bodies, God being concerned with our sexuality, uh, people like Sam Harris will bring to the point, why is the creator of the universe, the one so majestic, so magnificent, why is he so concerned with what consenting adults do in their bedroom? How, what would be your response to a rhetorical claim like that? Isn't it wonderful that God cares what we do? I mean, this is not a negative. This is a positive. <laughs> God made us, our bodies, you know, what we do with our bodies sexually, it's of great concern to him because we are of great concern to him. Mm. That's what I mean. Love thy body is the title of the book because the whole point is Christians do care about the physical world because right. God made it. And what God makes is good. What God makes has value. What God makes has great significance. I think Sam Harris's question is a great example of how his view does not accord value and dignity to the body and right. to what we do with our body. The Christian world gives, does in fact say, uh, that I'll, I'll pause a minute and say, a lot of people are mistaken on this because um, they think Christianity does have a low view of the body. That, I think hmm. that would be more common. Hmm. Um, you know, people say, oh, they think, oh, the spiritual world is all that matters. The physical world doesn't matter. Uh, one of my students put it this way, growing up in the church, I was always taught body bad, spirit good. <laughs> And I think that when I say that in my lectures, by the way, always the, the room goes, uh-huh. <laughs> so, so that's a mistake. And that's, that's what I'm, uh, in Love Thy Body, what I'm having to do is counter that uh, misconception among Christians mm -hmm. and help them to realize that we've basically, we've lost touch with our own heritage, right? The mm -hmm. early church was also born into a culture that devalued the body, just like modern secularism does. Though for very different reasons, um, the early church faced philosophies like Gnosticism and Platonism, which treated this world as the, the realm of death, decay, and destruction. And therefore, you know, the goal of salvation in Gnosticism, for example, was to escape from the body, escape mm -hmm. from the material world. So Christianity was very revolutionary in this context because it said, no, 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 um, this world is good. By the way, Gnosticism even taught that this world is so evil that the, the highest God did not create it. It was the creation right. of a lower level God, mm -hmm. you know, an, an evil God. <laughs> so Christians basically said, no, it's a creation of the highest God and he's a good God. And therefore the creation is intrinsically good. Mm. 
And even though it's fallen, that does not negate its original goodness in the sense that now it's like, uh, you know, an artistic masterpiece and a child comes and scribbles on it. Well, Mm -hmm. it it defaces it, but you can still see the beauty shining through. And that's the Christian view of the body, uh, that the the beauty of God's handiwork still shines through. But historically, though, the most, um, the, the greatest scandal of Christianity was the incarnation. Because that meant that that same highest God had entered yeah. into the material world and taken on a physical body. Uh, and, and that was actually even a, a more difficult message in, in the ancient world. And after you, you might say he did escape from the physical world when he was executed on a Roman cross. But what did he do then? He came back in a physical body. Yeah. To the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. Mm. <laughs> Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? So that's why, as Paul puts it, the concept of a bodily resurrection, it was foolishness to the Greeks, mm. as yeah. Paul puts it in First Corinthians. And by the way, and there's more. At the end of time, what's going to happen? God's not going to scrap the material world as mm. if he made a mistake the first time around. Right. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heavens and the earth. And that's why, you know, from the beginning, the church has affirmed the resurrection of the body for, for all of God's people. This is an incredibly high view of the body. There is nothing like it in any mm. other religion or philosophy. Right. And uh, same question that we talked about body, how we view it, and you know, where my identity lies. Transgender issues is something that speaks uh, it, it's, at the, it's at the peak when it comes into that question. And the term gender dysphoria is now uh, rather well common to the audience, but they may not know what exactly the term gender dysphoria means. Maybe you can unpack that in a few seconds and then we can get much more into transgenderism. Oh, start with just what is gender dysphoria? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a sense of discomfort, hmm. uh, disconnect, incongruity between your mind and your body. It's a sense that maybe I was, um, you know, although I'm biologically female, maybe I feel much more masculine in terms of uh, my gender identity. So it's just that gender dysphoria simply means I feel discomfort hmm. in this with the sex I was born with. Right. So th- that's why there's a, a distinct distinction now between sex and gender. Right. Um, b- but it it illustrates the secular view that divided, fractured view of the human the human being hmm. like a, like we were talking about before in the, well it's most it's very obvious in the case of yeah, transgenderism yeah. because tra- transgender activists themselves argue that your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex hmm. they're completely separate that your biological sex is not part of your authentic self uh, a bbc documentary uh, on the subject put it this way it said this uh, at, at the heart of the debate is the idea that there is a can be a war between your mind and your body? At, they're at war. Talk about a division. I mean, Christians Christians are saying, look, you know, body person are integrated. Hmm. You know, God created them both. We are we are a psychophysical unity, and you cannot you cannot simply dismiss the body. Uh, and, and even secular people, interestingly enough, are starting to see that this is the issue. Uh, I, I ran into an interview, and this was after my book, Love They Body, came out, so it's, it's not in there. 
Um, but it's an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years. She had uh, identified as a boy three years you know, at age 11. And then at age 14, she had recovered her identity as a girl. Hmm. And she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. From the mouth of a 14-year-old girl. So even secular people are starting to see that transgenderism is about, do you love your body? Hmm. And they're starting to say that transgenderism expresses body hatred. That's a right. term you'll see now, that it expresses body hatred. So that's... As Christians, there's, there's a common ground that's now appearing with people who are secular, but who are concerned about transgenderism, because they're finally seeing that the secular view of the person has led to this drastic divide hmm. Hmm. between the body and the person, or in this case, between biological sex and gender identity. Yeah. And I was recently catching up on an episode of the hit uh, medical show, Good Doctor. And in that there is a, a kid who comes for uh, gender confirmation surgery. So she is, uh, he's undergoing uh, gender transformation to be a girl. And uh, in an interaction with the character, Sean Murphy, she asked, well, how do you know you're supposed to be a boy? But for a Christian, the question of gender dysphoria is very difficult because we see that God who was purpose oriented, who knew us before the creation of the universe, who knew us in our mother's womb, who purposefully created us, me as an individual and me with my body. So for the secular world, something like gender dysphoria is something that you grapple with and you come to terms with and you embrace it. Maybe that's what is fed in the secular world. But for a Christian, when he, when he notices that someone has gender dysphoria, when the Christian is informed with God's purpose in, in human creation, what should be our response to gender dysphoria? How do we, how do we engage with it? Yeah, so we have to help people see that, you know, it, that the secular ethic is based on, on a very low view of the body, that it demeans the body. Hmm. Um, I'll give you, um, uh, Love Thy Body has lots of, lots of um, stories. So uh, there was a woman who lived as a lesbian for many years, and today she's married to a man and has two children. And she says, um, I, the turning point for her was, I came to realize that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body mm. by living in accord with the creator's design. That's a direct quote. That's, what, that's the message we need to get across to people, that the Christian ethic is about honoring our body. It's about living in accord with the creator's design. It's about respecting our biological sex. There's, um, the, the, interesting enough, um, one of the arguments that has have been very that has been very well received even by my secular friends which was kind of a surprise um was an argument based on environmentalism and you mm -hmm. say what's the connection <laughs> um it, the environmental movement has helped us to see that in order to avoid ecological disasters and pollution we need to respect the, the natural order it doesn't mm -hmm. mean you can't intervene but when you do you have to respect the order that's there right um, and what Christians are saying is that in terms of our sexual ethic, we need to respect our biological sex. Mm -hmm. Just as much mm -hmm. as you respect that tree or that river out there and you don't throw pollutants on it, right. by the same token, we're saying we should respect our biology. And it's amazing. I, I give that argument even to secular friends and because environmentalism is so widespread now, which, mm -hmm. is, which is good. 
they they immediately see, okay, I get what you're saying. They may not agree with you yet, right. but they get what you're saying. And so, um, and I'll give you one more example, um, just because it's, it's examples bring it to life. Um, one of my major examples on homosexuality is a, a young man named Sean, Sean Doherty, who grew up exclusively attracted to the same sex, uh, but today is married and has to a woman, and have, you have to say that these days, married <laughs> to a woman, um, and has three children, and is a Christian ethics professor, by the way, um, in London. Anyway, the interesting thing about his story is that he grew up in a gay-affirming family and attended a gay affirming church. So he didn't think there was anything morally wrong right. with homosexuality. So he was not driven by shame or guilt. Mm -hmm. So why would he change? He said it's because he, he acquired a new, uh, new understanding of the body from a biblical mm. point of view. He said, you know, I didn't try to change my sexual orientation uh, because it rarely works, right? He said, what right, I did do as I decided to base my identity on my body, because it was clear, you know, your, your feelings change, your feelings can change and sometimes do, but your body is an empirically knowable fact that doesn't change. Right. And he said, I, I decided it made more sense to take my body as God's indication of who I am hmm. and to begin hmm. to build my identity on my body instead of on my sexual feelings. And he said, and eventually my feelings did follow suit. So that's the, the um, sort of theme at the bottom of this yeah. is, you know, oh, I forgot his exact quote. His exact quote was, I decided to accept what I already had instead of trying to change my feelings. I decided to accept what I already had, which was a male body as a good gift from God. And that's what we have to help people to see. It's, this is not a negative message. I think Christians are often known for don't do it. It's a sin. It's mm. wrong. And there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you know? And so our, message, our, our language has to change. No, you know, right, we're talking, right. uh, accept your body as a good gift from God. We do not live in a cosmos driven by meaningless material forces. We live in a cosmos created by a loving God. And therefore, we accept what he's given us as good, as a good gift. So the changing of the language is um, a big part of communicating the Christian worldview more effectively. Right. And all of this brings to light as we come to the final few minutes of the podcast, all of this brings to light about the fact that we Christians uh, come to hold a very uh, stern position on these questions because we ourselves are Christians. We identify that the body is a gift from God. The body is uh, design or in that God has created with a purpose unlike an atheist who like you mentioned might think that you know you may be a girl born with a, a, a boy's body so for us Christians who hold strongly to these positions driven by the Bible driven by our knowledge about God's uh, identity infused into us created in this image where do we enter the arena do we uh, make our voice known only if someone asks us what our take on is this or when someone whom we know a sibling a relative a friend tries to engage uh, you know, in a, in a gender confirmation surgery or a same-sex marriage, where do we as common Christians step into this field onto in these in these most pressing questions? Well, it it, it does um, it is important to have a pastoral point of view for you know we need. I think there's two issues here. There's mm -hmm. sort of the Christian apologetics right. where you're arguing for a Christian perspective in the public square, mm -hmm. and there's the personal pastoral side, which is what do you do if somebody you know 
is struggling with these issues. Um, and the, I, th I think you're asking part, partly now for the second question. In, in the book, I do tell the story of a young boy who had gender dysphoria from a very young age. I call him Brandon, which is not his real name, but true gender dysphoria actually starts typically very young. Hmm. And you know, before Brandon was even walking, um, his, his babysitter said to his mother, he's too good to be a boy. <laughs> by, by which she meant he was quiet, gentle, compliant, and the things that we normally associate more with a girl. And in preschool, when his mother picked him up, every day he was playing with the little girls, hmm. not, the, not the boys. In elementary school, he was already coming to his parents weeping repeatedly, not just once, repeatedly weeping and saying, I think the way girls do, I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. And by age 14, he was uh, um, on the internet looking for information on sex change, sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? <laughs> First of all, they made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. Mm. I have had too many friends. I, I'll, for example, um, a friend of mine in, when I was in seminary, um, who was a former homosexual, because when he was young, he was interested in more feminine things like art and poetry and music. And as he said, his father kept trying to toughen him up by pushing him into more masculine things like sports. Uh, which obviously didn't work <laughs> because he did become a homosexual. And then when I knew him, um, he had converted to Christianity and, and was now a former homosexual. But Brandon's parents with their little, their little boy who had gender dysphoria did not try to change him. They kept telling him, it's okay for you to be a gentle, relational, sensitive boy. Hmm. It doesn't mean you're really a girl. It may mean that God has is equipping you for one of the caring professions, you know, for a psychologist, a counselor, a healthcare worker. Um, they, um, you know, he when he came home crying because he didn't feel like a boy, they say, well, what do you mean boy? And of course, he would have to list gender stereotypes. Well, I don't do this, this, and this. And they'd say, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. That was their favorite line, by the way. <laughs> it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes mm. that are wrong. And so they kept affirming him. Right. Um, they even took they even took him through personality tests, like the Myers Briggs personality test, to show mm -hmm. him that you can be a male on this side of the spectrum, or you can be a male on this side of the spectrum, and you're still a male. Mm. Uh, and of course, females too. You know, women can be on the uh, assertive, rational, take charge side of the spectrum too. And that doesn't mean they're really a boy. Right. They, they, so they, um, and I should say, by the way, uh, Brandon did eventually reconcile with his biological sex. It was a long, hard haul. Hmm. Christians need to be ready to st stay in there for many, many years, loving and supporting people. But here, here's his final take on it. He said, um, I realized surgery, surgery would not give me what I wanted. It would not make me a girl, hmm. um, you know, because every cell in your body is either male or female. Right. There's a, yeah. there's a famous TED talk by a cardiologist in which she says, every cell has a sex and you cannot change every cell of your body. Hmm. So he, he realized surgery wouldn't do it and that he'd had no, he, in a sense, he had no choice but to um, reconcile 
to the fact that he was a boy right. and that he's just he's just a very gender non-conforming boy hmm. and that's fine there's nothing that says you have to conform to the gender stereotypes and i think you know what he says the hardest place the hardest place is in christian circles that hmm. the stereotypes are strongest in christian circles it's almost as if the church is trying so hard to stand against secular culture that they reaffirm gender stereotypes even more than the secular world does. Um, for example, when he was in high school, some of his Christian male friends started a Christian manhood group, which is good, which is fine, but it emphasized only those really sort of um, aggressive, you know, um, leadership kind of qualities, right. which are good, but what about the, the boy who's, uh, look at the gifts of the spirit. <laughs> you know, what about the boy who's, um, who's whose who's, uh, gifts that God has given him are gentleness and, uh, and and caring and so on. You know, he, he was he was made to feel often in Christian circles as if he wasn't a good enough, you yeah. know, boy. Yeah. So that's where, uh, when Christians uh, take a pastoral tone, that's one of the things they can focus yeah. on. Reach, reach out to the kids who are gender non-conforming. Yeah. By the way, uh, you didn't you, you didn't ask this question, but people often do. You know, isn't homosexuality a transgenderism? Isn't it genetic? Hmm. Well, it turns out in studies, the most reliable correlation is not with genetics. It's just behavior. Hmm. Gender nonconforming behavior in childhood is the most reliable predictor of non-heterosexual outcomes as an adult. Uh, to, to give that, to, to give it sort of technical sounding mm -hmm. terms, non-gender conforming behavior in childhood is a much better predictor than anything genetic or physical or, or biological. And so the church can be reaching out yeah. to kids who are gender non-conforming because today they are going to be targeted by secular forces mm. that say, oh, look at you, you know, you're not, you, you're really, you know, you're not conforming to gender stereotypes, therefore you must be the opposite sex. So we can be uh, proactive and preventive mm. by reaching out to these kids. Right. Yeah, and that's, that just touches the point spot on as we come to the conclusion of this. Uh, I believe as, as you were talking about how we Christians are to engage with these questions, it just brings to light that as we love our body, it presses more on you know, how we're supposed to love our neighbor as well and not to, uh, not to look down upon them, but to be that beacon and, and affirm to them the identity that is uh, within all of us, created in the image of God, purpose-driven, created for a purpose, to know and cherish Him. And uh, thank you so much, ma'am, for he for being here with us and sharing your insight and wisdom into this very tricky question and also a question that makes many Christians to uh, shiver away in the face of a mob response. So we are very much delighted to have you here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was good. It was good talking with you. And to our audience, you have got to get on the book, uh, get hold of the book, Love, the, Love Thy Body. We'll be dropping the links in the description. As you know, all around the world, we, we see this, this rapid trend in media, on social media, on movies about uh, embracing your identity as you feel, where you, you decide who you are. And there is no other uh, superior ground for us to realize who we really are. And we see that, that it, with massive odds with the Christian worldview. And it's high time that we equip ourselves to not only stand our ground, but also to reach out to those who are struggling in this area so that we can share light. And as the scripture says, the light is not kept under the basket and the city on a hill is not hidden. So let us shine our light. Thank you for joining us and we will see you in the next one.
Take care and God bless. To know more about our ministry, visit our website at www.saftapologetics.com. You can also find Saft Apologetics on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon.